Yeah, so this morning I'm going to talk about sex, uh, which is always interesting. I've done lots of sex talks uh, in churches, and um, I can cut my teeth on sex talks, talks with youth and young adults. And uh, you, you always know, you know, when you're doing a sex talk with youth and young adults, the room is deadly silent and you can hear a pin drop, and, and uh, you can see lots of um, people going red in the face and looking at the ground like this. You know, it's, it's quite amazing how people externalise their internal emotions. Um, but also, the thing is, you always feel like you, as you're doing it, you're, you're going to step on a landmine, you know, and offend half the room. Or, at the least, make an unintended sex pun, and you'll hear um, Laura Parks giggling in the back row. Front row. Front row. Front row in this case, yes. So we can hear you on the recording. Um, but also... One of the things that I'm aware of is that we all come to, everyone in the room, including the preacher, comes to this topic with baggage. Um, We come with our own experiences of life and the church as well. So um, we can be hypersensitive, reading between the lines, thinking things are being said that aren't being said. Um, We can be carrying a lot of guilt and so, you know, can of worms can be opened up inside of us. Perhaps you've felt judged by others at different times, or perhaps you've judged yourself. Um, I want to invite you to put down your guard because um, it's not going to work if um, we're all in that space. Um, It's only going to work this morning if we're able just to listen and to think and and, um, see what the Bible has to say, which I know is very hard on this topic. I've spent many years grappling with the issue of sex, in a, in a broader sense, in terms of discipleship, because it's a huge issue for everyone. Um, and I thought about a different sides of the fence as well. Um, I, I um, studied in my PhD, I studied under one of Australia's leading feminist historians. I saw that perspective and I've seen, um, um, yeah, this perspective, like that gender studies um, approach to thinking um, at uni. And also, I've, I've seen things from myself, my own life, my experience, my own mistakes, um, the flaws in me and, and what I've learned from myself. Um, because like all of us, I'm a sexual sinner who needs Jesus' forgiveness too. So I need to grow my holiness in this area. But before we get into sex, I want to discuss a broader um, foundational issue for Christ- the Christian life. Um, which is actually in this passage, so it's not a, a side issue, it's actually a fundamental core issue. And it's the basic principle, which is this, that the goal of the Christian life is to live a life that pleases God. It's to pursue holiness. It's to look different. It's to stand out. Christians are to be a light on the hill, as it says in our vision statement, and in the words of Jesus, we're to be yeast in the dough. Now, you might be hearing this, some of you, and thinking, well, I feel uncomfortable with this, this idea of Christians standing out because uh, this is Christians, again, being sort of superior to other people and and judgmental. Um, But actually, no, I'm not saying that Christians are better than other people or necessarily even that Christians live a more moral life than other people. Um... But it's the fact that the Jews in the Old Testament and the Christians in the New Testament, they, yes, they included fornicators, liars, cheats, murderers, 
The Bible's are the, Bible is the first to admit this, but at the same time, all throughout biblical history, God speaks through the prophets, God speaks through Jesus, God speaks through the apostles, and calls God's people out of this life to living a life of holiness. Holiness that um, pleases God. On Mount Sinai, God said, And now, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be to me a distinctive people out of all the nations. For the whole earth is mine. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, says in Exodus. Distinctive, separate, standing out. Similarly, in Leviticus 20, people think, some Christians think, you don't need to read Leviticus anymore when you think about sex because we've moved on. But no, listen to this. Do not follow the practices of the nations who I am driving out before you. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from all the nations. You shall therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean, and you will be holy to me, because I, the Lord your God, am holy, the one who separated you from all the nations to be mine. This is from the section in Leviticus known as the Holiness Code, Leviticus 17 to 26. It's a well-known passage in the Bible, and we can be sure that Paul is very familiar with it. He was a member of the Pharisees, um, a group of the Jews called the Pharisees, and, and that word, Pharisee, means um, the separated ones. So, you know, when he starts talking to the Thessalonian church about being separate or standing out, living a life that pleases God, we shouldn't be surprised. And in this chapter, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul goes on to talk about this, and we'll see that he does it and applies this to the issue of sex. But it's interesting, distinctive holiness is now not just the boundary between the Jews and the rest of the world, but it's also applied now to Gentiles. These Gentile Christians in Thessalonica are going to be marked out as separate from the other Gentiles in Thessalonica. Distinctive holiness in the area of sexual conduct is something the Jews and the Old Testament constantly struggled with. Samson from the book of Judges, he visited prostitutes. King David with his illicit affair. King Solomon built an altar to false gods, um, Chemosh and Molech, and therefore he would have participated in the orgy um, worship that they used to do. In fact, Israel's unfaithfulness to God is, is called adultery by God himself. So, um, you know, they, they were not able to live this out, the Jews, this kind of sexual holiness. It was a kind of a characteristic of them. So, so the question begs, if they couldn't do it, the Jews of the Old Testament couldn't live out holiness, especially sexual holiness, how could the Gentile Christians in the New Testament do it? How could the Gentile Christians in the New Testament be, be distinctive and, and, and holy? And even more than this, what about us? How can we be distinctive and holy? I suspect all of us would admit if we were alone in the room and it was anonymous, we would admit to our own sexual brokenness. We'd admit to where we fall short of God's glory. And this is true for married and unmarried people, old and young. So, as we think about this, I want us to affirm that the Bible is positive about sex. It celebrates sex. Song of Songs is a great example of that. But it's also realistic. So just as Adam and Eve started in the Garden of Eden, naked and unashamed, 
As soon as sin stepped in, came in, they were, sh- they were full of shame and up, covering themselves up. And suddenly the Bible from then on talks about sexual jealousy, shame, affairs, orgies, lust, rape, incest and prostitution. Bible is in some naive document that doesn't understand human nature. It reveals a God who knows what we're really like and what we really get up to. But it also reveals a God who wants us to be sexually fulfilled and satisfied. And this is a passage, one of many, that deals with it from a certain angle. So here we go. Let's see what Paul has to say. There's a lot lot in my preamble there, but it's important when we talk about sex. He opens by saying this, to increase in conduct that pleases God. Look at verses 1 and 2. As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact you are living, now we ask you to you you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Now, um, in sex talks, people always want you to give you the do's and the don'ts. Um, I used to find using young adults, they always just wanted, how far can I go? That was the question they wanted. Um, and this passage actually doesn't really say any rules as such. Um, and I found. Um, that it's actually not necessarily always that helpful to give a set of rules out. Um, sometimes it can be. What Paul wants them to do is to adopt a posture of how to please God. Um, our rule keeping with God is actually not about how to please God, but how to please ourselves often. It's about how to create a line for ourselves so that we can get away with as much as possible. This is what we used to do. Um, my friends at church when growing up with the issue of sex, we were great at our rules, but the rules were always designed around ourselves and how much we could get away with. We were like little children, you know, like Leo, if I took, use Leo as an example. Um, if he's, he, you know, he's a four-year-old, so he's, he loves rules. So, you know, I'll say to him, if, he wants, if he's watching iView on the iPad, I'd say, three shows, you only have three shows. And you've got to remember the show's a little short. So he'll watch Thomas the Tank, which will be like 10 minutes, Thomas the Tank, another episode. And then he'll find the Fireman Sam episode that goes through an hour. And that's what we're like sometimes with our rule keeping. But Paul doesn't want this. He doesn't want us to be like toddlers. You know, He says he wants us to complete our discipleship, complete the things that are lacking in our faith. He wants us to abound and increase in love for one another and for all in order to strengthen our hearts as blameless in holiness. He wants us to do more and more to please God. We don't want to be like the, the Jews that Paul talked about and Jesus talked about that, that were, you know, religious on the outside but not on the inside, not spiritual on the inside. The religious people had a distorted morality. He didn't want that. Ethical instruction in this passage is closely linked to being a believer. You can't just know stuff. You've got to live it out as well. Being a Christian is not just what you believe, but it's what you do. So for the Thessalonians, when they uh, changed from being pagan Gentiles, they had to leave their idolatry, they had to walk away from it, and they had to adopt a new kind of sexual practice, and a new lifestyle. And these patterns of behaviour separated the Christians from the pagan social world. Look at verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus... This is not anything new. Paul came in and in his first three weeks of setting up the church, he gave them clear instructions on on what to do. So this is not a surprise. 
So the first idea there is to increasing conduct that pleases God. But then he says to be holy with your sexual conduct. Look at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and avoid sexual, sexual immorality. Now, you want, don't be naive about um, the ancient world and think that um, somehow we're more progressive than they were. In actual fact, they, they were just as very similar in, our, in their views on sexuality than the Western world is today. Um, we do know, for example, there was a lot of tolerance for um, sexual conduct outside of marriage. Um, marriages were usually family arrangements rather than love matches. And men in their 20s were often married off to teenage girls and, um, who they'd never met. And it's expected in the ancient Greek or Roman world that men would have sexual relations outside of their marriage, often with prostitutes or female slaves or mistresses from lower social classes. Um, so sexual activity was frequently uh, connected with pagan religious worship as well. So when Paul's talking about all this, you've got to think of that context as well. So that's where maybe it's slightly different to our context. And historians have good evidence that tells us that in Thessalonica, that were several religious cults that practiced um, sexual worship. So anything Paul is saying here is a contrast to that. We can assume that many of the Gentile converts converted out of that. They had to, one, learn their old ways. So yeah, I, I think it is no different to our context. While most people don't belong to cults that do sexual worship any, anymore in Melbourne, we live in a culture still that worships sex nevertheless, don't we? So, um, you know, that culture of permissiveness has to be unlearned. And most people who convert to Christianity in Melbourne will be coming from this setting. They will have to unlearn their old ways. The Thessalonians, they didn't experience physical persecution, but they ex experienced social harassment for their refusal to take part in their former cultic activities. They were pressured to go back to their old ways. And Paul's big point is he's saying, considering all of this, all this harassment that you're experiencing, this pressure, don't let that stop you from having sexual conduct which is holy and that pleases God. So Paul is saying here to pursue holiness. And let's be specific, pursue it with your sexuality, he's saying. And the word sexual immorality is uh, the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography. And it means a lot of things. Um, it means commercial or cultic prostitution means marriage within forbidden degrees of kinship so that's um, in the family structures in the in the, in, in the context you can't marry outside the family structures so I won't go into explaining the details of that but there are special rules around that sexual conduct in general outside of marriage whether it's intercourse or any other form of sexual activity and if you're still confused just think about how the law courts treats the concept of sex because um, sometimes we can be very Bill Clinton about our definition of sex. Remember what he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. But in fact, he was just being legalistic, wasn't he? Think about how the courts define it. And that's what kind of pornea is talking about. It's an umbrella term for any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. And Paul adds passionate lust in verse 5 and impurity in verse 7. He's making a specific point about pagan worship here. So Paul, Paul's call to not engage in sexual activity outside of marriage would have sounded a strange thing 
as it sounds today. Some people think all that sexual teaching, oh, of course, back then, 2,000 years ago, people would have nodded their heads and gone, oh, that makes sense. But no, it was just as weird then as it is to any of your neighbours today. Now, why is sex outside of marriage sin? Make sure we get our heads around that because sometimes we just assume it without thinking about it. It's because, because the Bible says that uh, sex is in the context of a marriage, it's a covenantal relationship. Men and women have unique glories. God created sex uh, to be a way of bringing that together. Um, husbands and wives reshape, learn from and work together. And sex in marriage is one of the Bible's ultimate examples of this unity and diversity. And it's glorious because it reflects the glory of Christ's relationship with the church. So in every Christian marriage service, we're reminded that Christ died for his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. And in the heaven, new heavens and the new earth, there's this image of the consummation of this marriage, right? So um, heaven will be like a honeymoon, where the honeymoon sex is divine. It's a bit of a weird image for you. Uh, the Bible's using this as a metaphor of the intimacy that we will have with God. If you don't appreciate the high view the Bible has for marriage and sex and the teaching about sexual immorality, it won't make any sense to you. The next thing that Paul says is learn to control your sexual desires and conduct. Verse 4, um, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. And when he says body, <clears throat> um, the translators and scholars are clear that he means your genitals. All right? So he's saying... Each of you should learn to control your own genitalia, or as I would say in Australia, keep it in your pants, right? Um, learning to control your members is closely linked to your honour and other people's honour. Paul believes that sexual activity of an individual impacts not just the self, but other people. And that's why he goes on to say that they should control their desires and conduct in a way that gives honour or respect to yourself and to others. It's another person-centred idea. So that in honour, chapter 4, verse 4, refers to controlling your sexual desire and conduct in a way that treats others with respect. It is the opposite of acting in a lustful passion that is a self-centred idea, a manner whereby a person is preoccupied with one's own sexual desire and conduct. Now, Cleo magazine, so I've heard, uh, will give you 10 tips on a great sex life. Um, and the Bible um, does the same thing. And at the top of the list of the Bible's list of how to have a great sex life is to be other person-centred, right? So that's the kind of way to have a great sex life. Before they sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve were other person-centred, naked and ashamed, complete sort of transparency there. But as soon as they, sh they sinned and the shame came, they covered themselves up with the fig leaves and there's suddenly a blocker between each other. And there's messiness in sexuality all of a sudden. The ultimate couple becomes private and reserved. Sexual relationships become distorted. But the gospel says that just as Christ was self-giving to the church, so married people should submit to one another in love. So look at the contrast in verse 5. Verse 5, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. This is the contrast to the other person's sin sex. Uh, this is the contrast of... Um, the unrestrained conduct of those who selfishly satisfy their own sexual desires, regardless of the harmful consequences on others. 
So he's saying to these Gentile Christians, don't act like the Gentiles. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? You're no longer just Gentiles, are you? You're now grafted in to the people of God. That's what he's saying. If he's writing to us, he'd be saying, Melbourne Christians, don't act like Melbourneians. Act like people who are the people of God. Look at verse 6. And in that, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So do not harm others with your sexual conduct. Don't harm others by engaging in illicit sexual conduct with someone that you're not married with. Paul is thinking specifically here of a male believer. It says in the NIV, others. Um, uh, yes, do not harm others. Yeah, no, he's, sorry. He's thinking here of, of men, it seems to be, but the NIV translates it in such a way so that it, it's applied to everyone because Paul is clearly talking over the whole passage to everyone in the church. And he's saying, you know, don't take advantage of your, of your wife or your daughter or another female member belonging to the extended household of this fellow Christian. Um, but you can apply it to men and women equally, this, pas- this passage. And we certainly know what harm does to a church. If you've been part of a church where there's been an affair, and there used to be affairs at St Hilary's, and it wasn't like it was announced from the pulpit or anything, but it did happen. And um, it does cause a massive ripple effect through the congregation. Um, and it causes huge disunity and damage. Um, often we spend a, lot, spend a lot of time in the media talking about the past of committing sexual sin, and that's highly serious, and there are lots of passages about that. But we're just talking about anybody here. Um, the same thing goes when church members date and um, are sexually active, and then um, there's a mess in the relationship, and then they break up, and then it causes division in the community. Um, that's why if you burn with passion, it's, it's good to get married. There's nothing wrong with that, if that opportunity rises. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9. Okay, now here's three reasons that Paul says in the passage for why you should be holy with your sex. Look at verse 6b. That's serious. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. So this is future judgment of Jesus. Jesus is talked about as the avenger, um, as the one who will come and bring justice to the world. Um, And this includes... Uh, convicting people of their sexual sin. This should not be a shock to the Thessalonians because Paul had already talked about this. And this is why, if you notice in the passage, he's actually not being hitting them with a hard hammer. He's saying, I urge you, I invite you. Um, because he's actually saying that they're doing pretty well in this area. It's interesting, if you think about it, that he only spent three weeks with them setting up the church and he spent time talking about sex. Because... For a lot of us today, um, when we're talking about mission and the church, we'll, we will say, oh, you don't talk about sex early on. Nah, you wait till a long way down the track, you know, and you just talk about Jesus. You know, let's just talk about Jesus and then let sex come up later because we don't want to put people off. But it got me thinking about the fact that Paul actually got jumped straight into it. And I'm not saying this is a prescriptive thing, but maybe for some people, the... Um, the life of sexual sin that they've had, of dishonouring themselves and others, of taking advantage of others, of, of passionate lust, perhaps isn't working well. And, and perhaps a message of sexual freedom um, in the Gospel, in Jesus Christ, um, is actually good news for some people. Perhaps they're emotionally scarred and they want healing. The good Gospel of Jesus Christ is good news to the sexually scarred person. 
He does bring forgiveness. He does bring restoration. He does bring a new way to find love. Jesus will bring justice, but he also offers forgiveness to all those who seek it. The second reason why you should live in a sexually holy way is because of the way, the fact you've been called to do this by God, it says in verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So at the time of your conversion, you're living one way. Now you've been called out of that to live a new way. As the Thessalonians turned from their idols to observe the living God, they changed their sexual conduct. And this goes for everyone today too, who's a Christian. Holiness is not a future goal that you just go, it's going to happen one day down the track. It's actually said you've been called into holiness. So live as you're supposed to live. Um, the process of becoming like Christ has already begun. The third reason, he says, um, that you should live in a holy way with your sex, sexuality is because of the present gift of the Spirit. Like verse 8. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, this is actually phrased kind of as a criticism, but also it's quite positive and good news. God gives his spirit to us, whose holy character empowered the Thessalonians to obey this teaching about sex. Look at the language of the Old Testament prophets about the blessed presence of God's spirit in the Messianic age. Uh, the Jews of the first century knew that their nation in, in, in the past and in the present was not living in God's standard of holiness, but they expected the Spirit to be poured out. Um, Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be purged from all your uncleanness and from all your idols and I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and will cause you to walk in my commands and to keep my judgments and to do them. And this passage is saying this has happened. What Ezekiel prophesied back then has happened to the Thessalonian church. You will be clean from all your uncleanness and I'll cleanse you. They've, they've, they've had this. They've moved away from their, their old ways and their idols. Ezekiel 26, 27. I will cause you to walk in my commands and to keep my judgments and do them. They're able to do this. Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit in you and Paul can say confidently that you have the spirit in you. The gift of the spirit was a fulfilment of the Old Testament prophets. So the, Thess the Thessalonian Gentiles can be holy with their sexuality. They are in a privileged status. They can stand out. It doesn't mean they won't make mistakes. It doesn't mean they won't slip up. But it does mean they have got God's power working in them. Now I call this sermon, Don't Have Hopeless Sex, because uh, I'm thinking in the context of the hope of Jesus and what this means for our sex lives. We can be holy. Sure, the temptations will be there. They may never leave you. We should not let our temptations define us. Sometimes we just think this is the way I'm always going to be. We don't have to carry the shame of Adam and Eve because Jesus has offered his forgiveness and God has sent us the Holy Spirit. We can resist the temptation to look at porn. We can choose to reserve sex for marriage. 
We can resist the temptation to have an affair with a colleague at work. We can have healthy, affirming relationships as single people that doesn't have to involve illicit sexual affairs outside of marriage. We can, as married people, be healthy in fulfilling the way that we relate to each other. We can, all of us, no matter what situation we're in, pursue sexual holiness in the power of the Holy Spirit. So with Paul, I implore us all to live a life that is pleasing to God by pursuing sexual holiness in the power of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we pray for all of us in this room who all need um, sexual restoration and to pursue holiness. We pray that we can all do that together, encourage each other in this process and uh, live in a way that honours you. Amen.